morning, church. It's so good to have this time together to open God's Word and submit ourselves to, to the teaching of His, um, His Spirit and His Scriptures. And let's, let's go to the Lord and ask His blessing on our, on our study together. Our Father, this morning, um, I, I, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts your holiness, your righteousness, and your exalted glory on display in the gospel and in your word. I pray that you would uh, humble us, and I confess, Father, my complete um, unequalness to the task of, of communicating your word, and so I rely on and claim the promise of your Holy Spirit that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish that for which you send it out. I pray that we would see Jesus Christ and the doctrines of his gospel as supremely satisfying this morning. In his name, amen. All right, so the, uh, the book that we are considering together this morning and, and um, studying as we continue our survey of the books of the New Testament is Paul's first epistle to Timothy. Now this letter is, is one of what we call the pastoral epistles together with 2 Timothy and Titus. They're called pastoral letters because in them the Apostle Paul is giving specific instruction to his, uh, to his disciples, his uh, co-laborers, Timothy and Titus, as to their pastoral shepherding roles in the church. Now these epistles, um, almost more than any others, have come under attack by contemporary liberal scholars um, who, for no good reason, will argue, let's see if I can fix that there, argue against Paul's authorship, uh, proposing that these were instead written by some well-meaning super fan of Paul's some hundreds of years later. They call this the, the, the pious forger theory. So I want to make sure that we we take enough time to deal with and properly address these scholarly arguments, um, they're wrong. And you may say, Carrie, how can you be so sure? Well, here's how, because when I open the pages of this book that by faith I confess to be the inspired, infallible word of God, and I turn to 1 Timothy 1, verse 1, and I read there, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. I know who wrote the book. And that's enough. Now, that is not to say that there is no prophet in the apologetic work that goes into refuting these so-called scholarly arguments. And in fact, if you have further interest in that, I would commend to you um, John MacArthur's introduction to this book. It can be found on gracetoyou.com for free. And he pretty much, in two paragraphs, completely dismantles uh, these so-called scholars. Um, but the point is, we shouldn't be surprised, it should not shock us, that there will always be unbelieving fools who want to pick apart and undermine the scriptures. And we don't have to deal with all of the cynical questions of the unbelieving world before we know what the answer is. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. This is an unassailable truth, which we affirm by faith. 
So we know who wrote the letter. Paul the Apostle uh, wrote 1 Timothy, Timothy to Timothy, um, whom he calls his beloved son in the faith. Timothy, whose name means one who honors God, was from uh, the town of Lystra. This is a Roman city in the south central region of what is modern-day Turkey. Um, he was the son of a devout Jewish mother and a Greek father. And it was his mother Eunice and grandmother Lois who faithfully taught him the scriptures of the Old Testament from a very young age. We believe Timothy's father to have died when he was quite young, which makes his close relationship with the Apostle Paul, who became his spiritual father, all the more meaningful. Paul led Timothy, along with his mother and grandmother, to Christ during his first missionary journey, um, when Timothy would have been just a boy. And when Paul came back through Lystra about five years later on his second missionary journey, he chose Timothy, who was now a young man in his late teens or early 20s, to accompany him on the rest of that missionary journey. And Timothy would become Paul's disciple, his co-laborer, and his loyal friend to the end of his life and ministry. Serving alongside of Paul from Berea to Athens to Corinth to Jerusalem and eventually in Rome. He was with Paul during his imprisonment there. And eventually Timothy himself became imprisoned for the cause of Christ. Now, part of, of Timothy's ministry with Paul is that Paul would often send Timothy to churches as his uh, representative. And in 1 Timothy, we see, ser Timothy, see him serving uh, in this special assignment as an apostolic delegate at the church in Ephesus. So although Timothy was in this unique role as Paul's representative there, his work in the Ephesian church was thoroughly pastoral, and his task was to shepherd this flock. And the instruction that Paul provides him with in this epistle is applicable to all pastors and to all congregations. So what is the main purpose of this letter? One of the goals that we have in this class is to answer this question. What is the author's intended purpose for writing the book? And what is their main goal? Paul makes this pretty easy for us by stating his purpose point blank in chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So Paul's purpose is to provide instruction for the church as to how they should live. Notice how he describes the church in these verses. The household of God. The church of the living God. A pillar and a buttress of the truth. So we often tend to speak about the church um, and perhaps even think about the church as if it belonged to us. We use language like, well, my church is, or our church, or well, which church is yours? Well, my church, um, but in reality, the church is not ours. It is God's. It is his household, as in his family household, according to Paul. And it's members are the children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's his household. And it must abide by his rules. 
And for those of you who were at Shepherd's Conference yesterday, that was in my notes before uh, those sessions, so I don't want you to think I'm, I'm ripping all of it off. But um, So we need to notice the universal impact of what Paul is saying here, though, in his purpose statement. He doesn't say, I'm writing to you so that you will know how, to, how people ought to live in that church, in that time, in that cultural context. No, his instruction is for the church of the living God, as in the whole church throughout time. So this means that the truths of 1 Timothy are universal. They are unchangeable and non-negotiable, far from being some outdated methodology. They are as relevant and authoritative today at Redemption Hill and at every other church in the world as they were 2,000 years ago. This is a timeless code of conduct Paul is providing for church life, but it is also more than that. Paul wants specifically to shape Timothy's priorities. Notice how he says, I am writing these things to you, Timothy, so that you may know. He wants to hone and direct Timothy's vision for the church in order to match God's. It is his task as God's appointed overseer of this flock to shepherd them toward God's purpose for his church. See, no pastor is free to sort of customize the church into whatever suits his personal vision. Only God has that authority. As well, it is not the congregation's prerogative to dictate to their pastors how the church is to be led. As the household of God, the whole church, shepherds and sheep, are accountable to one master, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. So the leadership of the Ephesian church had lost sight of this. They had strayed off of the course they had wandered off of the path of obedience. So Timothy has been dispatched by Paul to right the ship, to set in order this disordered church, and to lead this flock back onto the path of obedience. This was his task. And to do it, Paul knew that Timothy would need a clear understanding of God's priorities for his household. So we could think of this letter as a pastor's or shepherd's guide to care for the household of God. In it, Paul gives instruction for dealing with wayward elders and false teachers. He gives guidance for the roles of men and women in the church, priorities for prayer and evangelism, the requirements and qualifications for church leadership. He gives instruction for pastoral responsibilities, how church members are to relate to one another, and to their elders. But above all, from beginning to end, Paul impresses upon Timothy his charge to teach and to preach, to model for the church sound doctrine. So some of the key themes that I want us to look out for as we, as we go through our survey of this book and be mindful of, um, the first is that of sound doctrine. This is the central theme and perhaps the primary emphasis of Paul in this letter. He's supremely concerned with this topic, emphasizing it again and again throughout the book. He defines sound doctrine or healthy doctrine as that which accords with the gospel. 
biblical teaching that is in harmony with and flows from the gospel. So many of the specific directives which Paul gives Timothy in this letter direct relately to the church's doctrine. He is to defend it, to fight for it, to command it, to model it, to devote himself to the preaching and the teaching of it, to pursue it, to keep it pure, to urge others to uphold and to obey it, and finally to guard it as a precious deposit entrusted to him. So this repeated emphasis by Paul on sound doctrinal teaching, together with his stated purpose of instructing the church in how to live, ought to show us that there is a profound connection between our doctrine and how we live. You can't separate what the church teaches from how it lives. And it is precisely through sound doctrine that God shows us both who he is and what his will is for his church. So the second key theme of this pastoral epistle is the charge. Paul uses so much military language in this letter, telling Timothy that he is to wage the good warfare, to train, to defend, to fight the good fight of the faith, and to guard the deposit. And in keeping with this militaristic sense, one of the most crucial concepts in the book is the charge or the commission. The word which the ESV translates as charge, and some translations render instruction, is one that ancient Greek writers would often use for military orders. It means a command, a mandate, fully authorized. Paul is, is acting in this letter. He speaks to Timothy like a ranking officer delivering orders to a junior officer whose job it is to carry them out. And they come from the very top. The higher the authority behind the order, the greater the responsibility to carry them out. Over and over, Paul says, I charge you, Timothy. I charge you. I charge you. And with each successive charge, you get this increasing sense, both of the seriousness of the mission and the weight of responsibility that comes with it. So this idea of weighty responsibility leads us to our third key theme of 1 Timothy, which is that of stewardship. Now, although this word is only used once in the letter, as Paul talks about that which is contrary to the stewardship that is by faith, this idea and this concept um, is throughout the entire letter. In the ancient world, a steward... An overseer was a servant or a slave tasked with the management and the care of their master's household. Some examples from the Old Testament that we have would be Abraham's faithful servant, Eliezer, who obtained Rebekah as a bride for Isaac. We read that the elder or steward of Abraham's house was Eliezer, and he ruled over all that Abraham had. Another example would be Joseph, as he served in Potiphar's house as a steward, we read in Genesis 39 that he made him overseer or steward of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So this idea of, a, of stewardship, of a, of a servant who keeps faith with his master, faithfully managing and caring for that which belongs to the master. 
is the defining characteristic of the pastoral role as Paul presents it. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says that the top requirement of stewards is that they be found faithful. The phrase found faithful refers to this, this fact, the dangerous part of being a steward, and that is that you would be required to give an account to your master for how you managed his household. And this is exactly the charge which Paul is giving to Timothy. Guard the deposit. Pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching, for you will give an account. So we want to be looking for these concepts as we go through this letter. Um, quickly, just by way of an outline, we have um, seven main points. The first um, is the greeting that we see in, in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 1. The second would be Paul's instruction for Timothy concerning his mission uh, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 16. Um, as well, we have his instruction concerning the church uh, in chapter 2. In chapter 3, we have the qualifications for church leadership, instructions for church leadership in the household of God. In chapter um, 4, verses 1 through 16, we have instructions concerning the teaching of the church. In chapter 5, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 2, instructions concerning uh, pastoral responsibilities. And then finally, uh, in chapter 6, verse 3, through the end of the book, we have Paul's final charge to the man of God. Um, so we have in this greeting... Um, Paul's standard greeting, but it's, it's tweaked just a little bit for Timothy. Um, and he says here, Paul, an apostle by command of God, our Savior. I think he's pointing us to the fact that he wants, he wants Timothy to understand that Paul himself is under a charge, that he is under a command, and that his instruction comes from the commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. He's passing it on to Timothy, who is in turn then to pass on this instruction to the elders, and to the church where he's serving. In verse 3, we read, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So in this section where we have Paul's instruction concerning Timothy's mission, he wastes no time in giving him his marching orders. Paul sort of dispenses with all of the pleasantries. He gets straight to the point. And the first thing on his mind is to remind Timothy of the reason that he left him in Ephesus in the first place and the mission which he had urged him to carry out as Paul was leaving for Macedonia. In verse 3, he tells Timothy he is to stay on at Ephesus so that he can charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So the Ephesian church had developed a serious problem, one that was threatening to tear it into pieces. And tragically, this threat was not coming from the outside, but from within, rising up from the very men who were tasked with leading this church now, Paul had warned the Ephesian elders of this danger in Acts chapter 20 and verse 30 when he summoned them to Miletus and gave them this, this emotional final farewell and final charge. And he says, 
From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And now only a few years later, this prophetic saying has come to pass. And some of these men leading the the house churches in Ephesus were now polluting the church's doctrine. Paul says of them that desiring to be teachers of the law, yet not understanding the proper use of the law, they have gone off the path. They have swerved away from the sound doctrine and they're wandering in in this world of subjective speculation and personal interpretation. See, Paul is saying that the spiritual ambition of these men, together with their scriptural ignorance, is leading them to play fast and loose with God's revelation. And they're interpreting the Bible through the lens of their own private interpretation. See, uh, as, as, as um, Kent Hughes, one of the commentators that I, I enjoy reading, says, these men had made the Old Testament their happy hunting ground for their own private speculations. And speculation leads to uncertainty. And uncertainty breeds division. So the consequence of the sloppy handling of the church's doctrine by these leaders is that the church was becoming divided. And Paul says in chapter 6 that their love of controversy was producing envy dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among the people in this church. So Timothy's mandate is clear. He is to defend the doctrine by shutting down these men and calling them back to sound doctrine. And as we said, Paul defines sound doctrine as that which accords with, is in harmony with, and flows from the gospel. So in verse 5 of chapter 1, we read what, what their doctrine should be and what God's purpose for his household is. Paul says the aim or the, the goal, the finish line of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the word here that is used for charge is Um, is actually slightly different from the other places where we read uh, charge in the letter in that it it means instruction, um, a rule for Christian living. Christian doctrine as it relates to Christian living is what Paul is saying. So our teaching in the church on how the church is to live has the goal, the mission of love and of a pure Conscience. It proceeds from a pure conscience and a sincere faith. So this speaks of a complete submission to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life through the word, through sound doctrine. And it's so clear, this stark contrast between the, the, the corrupted teachings of these, of these arrogant men that leads to division and the sound doctrine that leads to love. So this is what the Ephesian elders have lost sight of. As Paul says in verse 6, they've wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Martin Luther spoke of 
the law as this divine sledgehammer. And it was being used recklessly and improperly by these men who did not know how to wield it, didn't understand its proper use. So as Paul digs into this charge to Timothy, in verse 12, he abruptly sort of digresses into a discussion of the gospel. But this is, this is by design because he's showing what real doctrine is to look like and that flows from this gospel. Um, but digression is a common feature of Paul's writings. And uh, in, he will, as he's, as he's writing, as he's carrying out a particular um, subject, a thought or a truth will arrest his attention. And he sort of takes a temporary detour in order to pursue that thought and to flesh it out. And it almost, almost always has to do with the glory of the gospel. So he does this twice in 1 Timothy. And these gospel digressions are some of the most beautiful meditations and summaries of the gospel that we find in Scripture. Um, and it's this that captures Paul's gaze in verses 12 through 17 as he extols the glory of God on display in the gospel through his own story of conversion. He writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And I am going to borrow this from Shepherd's Conference, but uh, Charles Spurgeon once said that he could boil down his theology into four words. Jesus died for me. When the famous slaver who came to Christ became a pastor and wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, John Newton, near the end of his life, um, as his health was declining, he began to lose much of his memory to the point that he no longer knew many people's names and faces, events from the past. And in his final hours, someone asked him about what he could remember. He said, two things I remember, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. <clears throat> See, there is a right sort of gospel-centered reflection on our sinful past and what we have been saved out of. And it looks like gratitude and thankfulness. This is what Paul is doing as he holds up the gospel. And it overflows in thankful praise in verse 17, as he says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he concludes this opening charge to Timothy in verses 18 and 19, where he says, This charge, that is the charge concerning the sound doctrine according to the gospel that he's already unpacked, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So this brings us to the second major section in this letter, um, Paul's manual for life in the household of God, as he deals with instruction concerning the church. And there are two big issues that Paul wants to address here, and they are the priority of prayer in the church, as well as the role of men and women in the church. So first of all, we see Paul teaching on his priority of prayer for the church, um, where he says he urges that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, 
This is good, he says, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul's first priority for the household of God is that it be a house of prayer. And it is to pray with a great commission focus. So what does this mean that God desires all men to be saved? Now there are godly men who, who will take slightly different views of interpretation on this passage. And there are some who would say that it means that God desires all sorts of men to be saved. Or that God desires um, those whom he has chosen to be saved. But while those are doctrinally true statements as well, that's not what the text says. And we must be careful not to modify a passage of Scripture in order to, to sort of make it fit better into our theological frameworks. See, what is happening here is that this, this speaks of God's moral will. The moral will of God is what he commands men to do and what should be. And this moral will of God is in perfect harmony with, but is also distinct from his decreed will, that which infallibly comes to pass and what shall be. So obviously it's not telling us that God has decreed that all men should be saved. This is not a universalist proof text. Otherwise, all men would be saved because God is sovereign. But in his, it is his desire, according to Paul. It is his moral will, as we read in Acts 17.30, that all men everywhere repent and believe the gospel. And we should not narrow this compassion and this broad mercy in the heart of our God. There's, there is a profound mystery here, one that our finite minds are not built to understand. But we, while we affirm the clear teaching of Scripture that men are saved by God's divine calling and election, as we read in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Ephesians 1 verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Yet... By Paul's instructing the church to pray for all men, because God desires all men to be saved, he roots this truth in some, something deep in the heart of God, his universal compassion and pity for fallen men. We see this in passages like Ezekiel 18, verse 32, where God says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Ezekiel 33, 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? These are the words of God. And Jesus reveals this compassionate heart of our God in John 3.16, where he says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The prayer life of the church, according to Paul, 
is to reflect the compassionate and merciful heart of our God in prayers for all men. So after this, the second topic that occupies um, chapter 2 in Paul's instruction for the church is the role of women in the church. Um, I won't read the whole passage, but he, 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 he says in verse 12, which seems to be the sticking point for most, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, many contemporary evangelical church leaders have tied themselves in knots trying to explain away what Paul is saying here about the proper God-designed role of women in the church. Now, one of the commonly used proof texts that people will bring up to argue against the validity of, validity of what Paul is saying here is found in Galatians in chapter 3, uh, verses 28, where speaking of our radical equality before God, he says, there are, is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, now there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what, what these um, feminist um, interpreters will do is they'll take these less didactic, uh, less central, more implicit passages and elevate them to interpretive priori priority over everything else. Uh, which is how, what allows them to say that, well, what Paul's saying here is invalid because we've got this other verse that says there's no men or women. Um, this is a violation of sound Bible interpretation. When interpreting the Bible, we must let the explicit passages clarify the implicit ones, not the other way around. Um, so opponents of the historic view of 1 Timothy chapter 2 will flip this on its head, and they, they actually will use this to defend uh, even things like transgenderism uh, or homosexuality. And we need to teach right Bible interpretation, practice. And at Redemption Hill, our elders hold to the traditional historic interpretation of this text, uh, which, by the way, is, has been the predominant view of the church throughout most of its history. And only recently, with this rise of feministic ideology and cultural rejection of gender roles, have we seen uh, the church's wholesale departure, almost, from this orthodox historic view. The interpretation which really takes Paul's instruction at face value. Namely, that the proper role for leadership in the church models the creation order of male headship. Now, to support this, Paul actually goes back uh, to creation and to the fall as an example of the consequences which come from the reversal of what God has designed. He says in verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So, as Paul's saying, when sin entered the world, what we see is Adam utterly failing in his God-ordained headship role with disastrous consequence. So just as Ephesians chapter 5 clearly establishes the doctrine of male headship in the home, 1 Timothy chapter 2 uh, is a counterpart text that clearly establishes God's good design of male headship in the household of God, the church. Now this does not mean that women are not to engage in any sort of Bible teaching ministry. On the contrary, we see throughout the New Testament that the early church was blessed by spiritually gifted, spiritually mature women who taught the Bible. For instance, we read in Acts 18 
that together Priscilla and her husband Aquila were instructing Apollos in the scriptures. Timothy's own life and ministry owes much to the faithful women who taught him the scriptures. So what Paul has in view here is not, is not merely teaching, but authoritative preaching. I do not permit a woman to authoritatively teach or preach and exercise authority over a man in the church. So we've briefly touched on Paul's instruction for the church in chapter 2, but I want to make sure that we, we have enough time to move on to chapter 3. Uh, so this is the next major section in our handbook for life in the household of God as Paul lays out the qualifications for church leadership in the household of God. He says in, in verse 3, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This verse is often quoted by itself. And we sort of take it to mean that if a man desires the office of an overseer, then that's a, that's a good thing. It's a noble thing that he desires that. And, and that's not wrong, but I think it misses some of the emphasis of what Paul is saying here. Um, because the therefore that we have in verse 2 puts the verse 1 statement in a conjunctive relationship with what follows. So the idea being, if a man desires the office of an overseer, the nobility of that office means that he must meet the following requisite spiritual qualifications. The standard befits the task. Is what Paul is saying. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, this doesn't mean sinless perfection, but it does mean that no serious charge sticks, no accusation of ungodliness can credibly be leveled against a man who would be an overseer in the church. He must be the husband of one wife, literally a one woman man. This man's faithfulness to his wife and his commitment to personal purity must be unquestioned. He must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So the first thing that we ought to see and recognize about this list of qualifications um, is that Paul says almost nothing here about what an overseer is expected to do. All but one of his qualifications focus exclusively on who an overseer is in his character and in his spiritual maturity. Nearly all these qualifications have to do with the godly character of the man who aspires to the pastoral office. And this qualification is less about, gift, uh, less about ability or gifting and has everything to do with spiritual maturity. 
In verses 8 through 13, Paul goes on to list the qualifications for deacons. And for the sake of time, we will not read all of them. But as you look at these two lists of qualifications for, um, for elders or overseers and for deacons to st- serve in the church, what stands out is how closely they parallel one another. Uh, the only substantive differences being the ability to teach as a qualification for an elder. And what we can see from this is that there are, there are not two s- different standards um, that God has for leadership in the church. In fact, with um, only a couple of exceptions, and, and D.A. Carson points this out in his commentary, um, except for a couple of exceptions, that of not being a novice and, and the ability to teach, all of the qualifications listed here for elders and deacons in other parts of the New Testament are required of all Christians. So what this means then is that a pastor is not some sort of overachieving super-Christian who has achieved a whole new plane of existence apart from the church. A biblically qualified pastor is a man who, by God's grace alone, exemplifies in his own life and maturity the spiritual fruit which God calls all of his household to follow. So it is this exemplary exemplary nature of the task of an overseer that Paul has in view when he says in chapter 4 and verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. I hope that this helps us to understand how we are to pray for our pastors, to know the godly walk and example that is required of them and the heavy responsibility, and yet also the provision that God has made through his spirit to raise up these men as our leaders and to keep them in his will. And we must pray for them. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And then he digresses again with a summary of the gospel in verse 16, where he says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So in chapter 4, we have instructions concerning the teaching of the church, where Paul helps Timothy to identify uh, false teaching, false teachers, as well as to refute um, their demonic doctrines that were being spread. And then he gives some practical instruction concerning his pastoral responsibilities, how he's to engage with and minister to older men and younger men, older women and younger women, how to care for widows in the church, how to honor those who labor in the scriptures, how to protect the elders from slanderous attacks, and how to publicly rebuke the one who rebelliously persists in sin for the sake of the flock so that all might fear. And for the sake of time, uh, I've done it again. We've got, we've got too much to get through, so I'm going to uh, uh, have to move on to something that I really want to talk to you all about. And that is Paul's closing charge to the man of God in chapter 6. 
See, the, the pacing of Paul's writing sort of changes as he nears the end of this letter. You get the sense that all of his instruction to Timothy has been building up to this final charge in verses 11 through 16, where he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, speaking of the love of money and the love of controversy, um, but rather pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So Paul reminds Timothy here of a day, of a moment in his life where everything changed. The whole trajectory of his life was changed when he made what Paul refers to as the good confession. So in the Greek, this literally reads, when you confessed the good confession. This means to publicly declare and thereby commit oneself to a statement of truth. So what is the statement of truth to which Timothy committed himself? That we find, we find the answer to this excitingly in verse 13. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. So he's calling God the Father, God the Son as witnesses to this final charge. And speaking of Christ... And pointing Timothy to Christ, he says, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. The good confession, Paul says, that you first confessed was made by Jesus himself before Pilate. So what was this fearless testimony that Christ gave? What Jesus confessed before Pilate is exactly what was scrawled on the board that was nailed over his head on the cross. That he is the king. And Paul's saying, Timothy, remember remember when you made that confession. The confession that Christ made that meant his death is also the confession that you made that meant life, eternal life for you. In light of this, with God the Father, And Jesus' witnesses, Paul says, I charge you, keep the commandment. Now, every one of the charges that Paul has given to Timothy in this letter prior to this have centered on one thing, sound gospel doctrine. I believe what Paul has in view here when he says, I charge you to keep the commandment. What could we say? is the supremely authorized gospel command to which all Christians owe their allegiance. I hope you're thinking of it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the world. Paul wraps up his instruction for the household of God and for the steward of the household of God with this final, this final commission, this final charge. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Grace be with you. All right, well, Thoroughly enjoyed studying this book, and you should too. So we'll see you back here in uh, 
a little bit less than 15 minutes.